Welcome to the Boone's Creek Baptist Church podcast. We are a church that exists to spread God's glory from our neighbors to the nations. This is Pastor Tim Wade, and we pray that you will be blessed as we consider God's living, active, and all-sufficient Word together. Well, this morning I'd ask that you turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. As you are turning there, some of you may be familiar with the name Elie Wiesel. Elie Wiesel was a prominent Jewish author and humanitarian who survived the horrors of the Holocaust. And for that reason, Wiesel is no stranger to hardship or to wolves. Wiesel was born in Romania to a Jewish family in 1928. And once Romania was occupied by the German forces, Wiesel's family and all the other Jews in the city were forced to uh, sequester themselves in one neighborhood. They were not permitted to leave that neighborhood. And he and his family hoped that that would be the extent of their suffering, the hands of the Nazis. But they were in some ways foolish to think that. Because Wiesel and his family actually had a warning about the fact that the Germans who were coming to them promising peace if they would just obey the commands were actually wolves seeking to devour them. There's a leader of a local synagogue who was sent by train to Poland where he and other Jews on the train were forced to dig a pit beside the railroad tracks and were then shot and thrown into the pit. This leader of the synagogue actually survived. And he uh, pretended to be dead. He laid in the pit with among the dead bodies for three days before deciding to get up and try to return to the city. And he returned there to the city of Seget where Wiesel and his family lived. And he told the Jews about what had happened to them. He He told them about how the Nazis would take Jewish babies and throw them into the air and use them as target practice. But the amazing thing is, nobody listened. Nobody heeded this warning. Nobody actually believed him that the Nazis were wolves. The Nazis promised that if the Jews just obeyed the rules, that they would be fine, that no further harm would come to them. And so even when they had an opportunity to escape, they did not. They trusted the wolves. And sure enough, Wiesel and his family were sent to concentration camps. His mother and his young sister were murdered almost immediately upon arrival. And his father, too, would die shortly before the camps were liberated. Wiesel, though, would survive and he would go on to write 57 books. He would win a Nobel Peace Prize for his humanitarian efforts. But even that didn't protect him from wolves. In 2008, about eight years before Wiesel died, the Ponzi scheme that had been run by Bernie Madoff was uncovered and collapsed. Like the Nazis, Madoff had promised that if you would just trust him, if you would just listen to him and follow his guidance, that everything would work out. He seemed like a financial wizard. He was able to promise spectacular gains on your investment. And he boasted a large and famous clientele. 
So after consulting with friends and other financial advisors, Wiesel invested with him and invested heavily. When the scheme collapsed, Wiesel and his wife lost their entire life savings, some $12 million, along with another $15 million that he'd invested from his humanitarian organization. Twice in his life, everything was taken from him by wolves. And if such a tragedy can befall a celebrated author, a Holocaust survivor, a Nobel Peace Prize winner, then we should understand that we ourselves are not immune from similar deceit. That is why, as Jesus concludes here the Sermon on the Mount, he warns us against wolves in sheep's clothing. Those that come to destroy, to enrich themselves at the expense of your very soul. Because these wolves that Jesus are warning us about, they're not simply out to steal our money, like Bernie Madoff, or even eradicate an entire ethnic group like the Nazis. But their desire is to consume your very soul. The danger is real. And even the best of us can fall victim to them. Therefore, we need to heed Jesus' warning here in Matthew chapter 7 very carefully. If we are to continue down the narrow path that we talked about last week, that Jesus called us to follow as believers. And so then this morning, if you are able, I would encourage you to stand with me as we read together Matthew chapter 7 verses 15 through 20. There, Jesus says to us here in the Sermon on the Mount, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And let's once more turn to the Lord in prayer this morning. God, as we come before you this morning, we ask that you would help us to take this warning seriously. Help us to realize that that out there in the world around us, there are wolves. And these wolves have infiltrated the church. They've been there from the beginning. And they will continue to be there until you return. And expose them for who they are. So Lord, I pray for discernment. I pray for, for open eyes to see bad fruit. Before, Lord, we are taken in by their subtle by their tickling teaching. Lord, I pray that you would give us great wisdom to avoid these dangers. And if we realize that we have indeed already heeded the counsel of wolves, if we realize that we have already been taken in by their schemes, Lord, I pray that you would free us from them. Lord, I pray that if we realize that we have Trusted because of wolves, a false gospel. If we are not actually on the straight and narrow path, if we have not actually entered through the narrow gate that you call us to, Lord, I pray that we would repent 
and seek and find the narrow gate that you offer freely to all those who come to you through Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would help me this morning to proclaim your word clearly. That you would help me to examine my own life. To find weaknesses in doctrine or in lifestyle that need to be amended. Lord, I pray that you would help us as a church body to be wise and discerning, to be faithful to you as we help one another along the narrow way. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. As we come to these verses this morning, Jesus' very first word in this section provides us with our first point. Beware. Beware. Whenever you see a sign that's labeled, beware, you know that there's something that you need to be cautious of. Now, I've seen many beware signs in my life. You have too, I'm sure. Beware of electric shock. Right? It's placed on transformers and other uh, big electrical systems. You don't want to touch these things. It could hurt you. Um, once while I was down in Savannah, we were playing golf at a golf course and there's a large body of water and, and there's a sign on this particular hole that said, beware of alligators. And sure enough, I hit my ball close to the water and when I got down to where my ball was, about 15 feet away, there's an alligator laying out on the beach or, or at the edge of the body of water taking in the sun. Now, I know you're told that in golf and baseball and whatever sport you're playing to never take your eye off the ball, but that was awfully hard to do while both eyes were focused on that alligator about 15 feet away. I I didn't make birdie on that hole, um, but I got away from the alligator as quick as I possibly could. Beware of dog is another one you may see. Um, There's all kinds of beware, warning signs, caution signs. And usually the danger is not readily apparent. It's not laying out there for everyone to see like that alligator was. But it's there nonetheless. It's only a possibility that you could be electrocuted or eaten. But the sign warns us that the possibility is real. In the same way, Jesus' warning here, his word beware, alerts us to the fact that there is a very real danger that we are facing. And the danger here that he's concerned about is false prophets, or we might say false teachers. These are people that claim spiritual authority in your lives. It could be a pastor. It could be a Bible teacher. It could be a spiritual leader. Or today, some of you may be familiar with people who apply terms to themselves like life coach or influencer. These are people that have our trust. And often, they have our trust for good reason. You see, the Bible lists teachers and pastors as gifts that God has given to His church, to His people, for their benefit. But like so many other things, we find when God gives a genuine gift to the church, Satan is always eager to sneak in a counterfeit. His wolf. And so Jesus warns us here, beware, be on your guard because the threat is real. And we have to beware because Jesus tells us that these imposters, these false prophets, they're not always easily recognizable. They're wolves, he says, in sheep's clothing. 
Notice Jesus doesn't tell us to beware of wolves that present themselves to us as wolves. The false prophet never comes to us and says, Hello, my name is so-and-so and I'm here to tickle your ears. I'm here to teach you heresy that's going to be pretty destructive to your soul. Bernie Madoff looked like a professional investor with nice suits. Excellent reports, though they later found out that those reports themselves were counterfeit. He had a likable personality. He wasn't showing his teeth. He didn't come to his investors like Ellie Wiesel and say, Hello, Ellie. Uh, yeah, I'd just like you to know that I'm going to take your money and use it to pay off the people that's invested with me before. And then hopefully I'm going to attract new investors that will pay you off. No, he told them lies. It wasn't apparent. Even to someone who had already been accustomed to dealing with wolves. The wolves come in disguise, wearing the attire that we expect to see them in. John MacArthur points out that despite popular depictions, that that what Jesus is talking about here is not necessarily a wolf that is trying to blend in with the flock. So you've probably seen the, the, the cartoons, the illustrations where you've got a flock of sheep and then you've got the, the wolf that's down on all fours with the sheep's clothing draped over the top of him. He says that's not really what we're dealing with. MacArthur says that Jesus is referring to the wool garments that would have been worn by the shepherds. The shepherds would typically wear clothing made from the wool of the animals that they took care of. Literally sheep clothing. So the wolf is not trying to look like another sheep, but like a shepherd, like a leader, like someone that you can trust. But their target here, like actual wolves, is indeed the sheep. A false prophet's desire is to take advantage of you. To use you to his own ends to benefit him, whether it's financially or by gaining a following or whatever it might be, to lead you astray to prey upon God's people for their own benefit and gain. It doesn't have to be logical, right? A ravenous wolf, like Jesus says here, they're inwardly ravenous wolves, that they don't necessarily act logically. They just go and they're hungry, so they attack and devour. And so you may think, well, it doesn't make sense for them to trick and deceive. Why would they want to do that? Because they're a wolf. And that's what they're going to do. That's why Jesus tells us to beware. We are in danger. These wolves are ravenous. They can tear through a congregation. They can tear through a family. They can tear through an entire community. And then politely wipe their mouth with a napkin when they're done. I've said this before, but I I had a professor in seminary who spoke about a mission trip that he went on to Brazil. He said that they happened to come in. This wasn't planned, but they came into this community the week after a popular traveling evangelist had been in that community. And this evangelist had convinced the people in that poor Brazilian community to give them all of their money. To, he'd given them great promises that if you will give me your money, then God is going to bless you tenfold or a hundredfold. And if you'll, just, if you'll just give me what you have, then you're going to get a lot more back. And so they took these people's money and they left. And when this mission team came in, the faithful pastors there in that city said, we don't know what to do. Our people have given all that they have and now they're angry and rightfully so. 
They believe they've been lied to and now they don't trust us. Because these wolves have come in and lied to them. My seminary professor said there is a special place in hell for wolves like that who would prey on God's people. Who would lead them astray, who would devour their souls and divert them from the narrow path that God has called us to. So how do we avoid this danger? What can be done to protect ourselves from the wolves? Well, Jesus tells us that the best defense against the wolves is our second point. Recognize bad fruit. Recognize the bad fruit. Examine and realize when there's bad fruit being shown. This is the warning that we get. False prophets produce bad fruit. Now, this is difficult for us because it requires careful attention and discernment to be able to recognize the bad fruit. See, Jesus again doesn't indicate that there's anything on the outward appearance that would indicate that the fruit is bad. There's nothing that our eyes necessarily perceive right away. Everything looks normal. They dress the part. They talk the part. They may have seminary degrees. Everything looks good. That's why I I somewhat intentionally dressed the way that I did this morning. I'm, I'm shedding the bow tie for today. Right? Because I don't want you to believe what I have to say to you because I'm wearing a bow tie. I want you to believe what I have to say because you can see that it's clearly coming from God's Word. I don't know that the bow tie helps anyway. I had somebody tell me once the only people they knew that wore bow ties were clowns and used car salesmen. So, (laughs) don't know that it has the effect that I would hope. But you see, we have to look deeper than the outward appearance. We don't look at the clothes they wear. We don't look at the seminary degrees they have. We have to be careful. We have to be discerning. Because false teachers will never stand up and announce that they are about to teach heresy. So we have to spot bad fruit. As we look for this fruit, we need to recognize that it can present itself in two different areas. Two different areas. And bad fruit can be seen in either of these areas. It can present itself first in either of these areas. But eventually, I'm convinced, and I've seen played out time and time again, it will show up in both. Because corruption in one of these areas tends to lead to corruption in the other as well. These two areas, the first is doctrines. Typically bad fruit will show up in doctrines. What the false teacher teaches. The second area is lifestyle. How the false teacher lives. Both can reveal bad fruit. Typically though doctrine is at the forefront of this. It's often subtle and easy to miss. Because more often than not, the bad fruit of a false teacher's doctrine will reveal itself in what the false teacher refuses to talk about. Rather than what they do talk about. It's found in what they omit. Their unwillingness to talk about certain things. Now, as we talk about this, I think one of the most helpful things to do is to talk about real life examples that you can see And recognize here today. And I don't say this because I am trying to be mean or offensive. If you listen to any of these people I'm going to mention. Then I would just encourage you to evaluate what's being said. And to measure it against God's word. 
But I think one of the better examples of this is Joel Osteen. He's a very popular preacher. He's a best-selling author, which means it's possible that some of you may have his books on your shelf. But a few years ago, in an interview with Katie Couric, when asked about his stance on a particular sin, he said in that interview, Katie, I just don't like to harp on certain issues. And I like to be for everybody. And when Katie Couric pressed back about why he doesn't talk about sin, he told her, he says, there's enough pushing people down in life already. When they come to my church or our meetings, I want them to be lifted up. I want them to know that God's good, that they can move forward, that they can break an addiction, that they can become who God's created them to be. End quote. Now, that may sound good. We may like that. Enough people like that message to make him a best-selling author. But here's the problem with that. What if an oncologist took that same perspective? There's enough pushing people down in life already. When they come into my office, I want them to be lifted up so I don't harp about cancer or treatments or how they can get better. Now, I don't know about you, but when it comes to life and death, I don't want to go see that doctor. I don't want that doctor treating me. I want a doctor that will tell me the truth about my situation and then lay out a path for healing and then work with all of their energy to help me get better. To help me live, to save my life. Similarly, when people come to church, we don't always need to be told that everything is great and that, it's, that sin is no big deal. We need to be told what the Bible says about us, that there is none who is righteous, no, not one. That all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. That apart from Christ Jesus, we are enemies of God and we are doomed to hell. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, sent us His Son to live a perfect sinless life, to go to Calvary's cross on our behalf and to take on His own shoulders and in His own body the debt that we owed for every wrong thing that we have ever thought, every wrong thing we have ever said, every wrong thing we've ever done, and to pay for those things Completely to drink down God's wrath for our sin and to declare it is finished. So that if we put our hope and trust in Him, we can be saved and be prepared for heaven where we can enjoy God's presence and the created order as He made it and as He intended it forevermore. That's the hope that we have in Christ. But here's the deal. We never get there We never get to know and experience the joys of heaven until we first hear the bad news of our sin and realize that there is something very real in our lives that we need to be forgiven of. There is something deeply broken within us that has to be fixed and that can only happen by Jesus. Now, if I take the approach that I'm only ever going to lift people up and try to make them happy, I never actually get you to true happiness. I never actually help you experience the joy that God has for you. We have to look the bad part about ourselves square in the eye. We have to look the truth of what God's word says about us square in the eye if we hope to experience the joys that he has for us. 
that may not always make us as happy as what Joel has to say. But it's what we need if we are to have any hope of salvation. It's not pushing people down to tell them the truth from God's Word. The wolves, on the other hand, will subtly omit distasteful truth. Because it doesn't draw in the crowds. It doesn't fill their bank accounts. It's much easier to profit and benefit from just telling people what they want to hear. Tickling their ears. In the context, though, of what Jesus says here about the straight and narrow path that we studied last week, we can summarize this doctrine, or their lack of doctrine, as Martin Lloyd-Jones does. He says, there is no straight gate in it. Of these wolves, when they preach, when they teach, there is no call to follow the straight gate and the narrow path. Their teaching lays out no moral demands. It is permissive. It minimizes all our responsibilities to the Lord and it allows us to continue feeling good in our sin, not realizing that something is wrong. The teaching of wolves will never call out gossip or gluttony. It will never call out our failure to trust the Lord in difficult circumstances. It will never call out our dishonoring behavior to our parents. They'll never call out our judging others for their outward appearance, showing favoritism, failing to be compassionate to the orphan, the widow. It allows us to go on in our sin. All these things are minimized. They become optional. As if Jesus didn't just tell us that there's a narrow gate and few find it. There's a straight and difficult path that you have to take and that path leads us to life. We have to realize what Jesus says and take his warning seriously that there are people that want to divert us from that path. There's no straight gate in their preaching. The second way that we see bad fruit, though, is in the lifestyle and the lifestyle of the false teacher. Are they greedy? Greedy for dishonest gain. The the Bible says that's a disqualifying factor for a pastor. Do they neglect their family? Do they flirt with other women? Do they harbor secret sinful habits? Are they one way when they're around people at church and another way in private? All these are warning signs of bad fruit. And sadly, over the past couple of years, there have been countless examples of pastors who have committed egregious sins, moral failures, And typically what we will see when we go back and and do an analysis of their situation is that loose doctrines preceded their moral failure. One of the saddest examples of this in the past several years has been Billy Graham's own grandson, Tulian Chavichin. As a popular pastor, he began teaching that all we need to do as Christians is trust in Jesus' completed work for us in every aspect of our lives. Now, again, this sounds very good. He even wrote a popular book. It was touted by faithful Christians called Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And that is absolutely true in our salvation. We cannot add a single thing to our salvation. It is all accomplished by Jesus Christ so that on the cross, when he said it is finished, it was finished. All that was left for us 
was to trust, to submit our lives to him. But some people started to point out some problems with that in practice when it comes to our sanctification or the way that we live. What happens, for example, if you have a porn habit? Do You say, well, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, so I'm just going to sit back and wait for this to get better. No. Because Jesus tells us if, if your right hand offends you, cut it off. Take decisive action against sin. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. So you get rid of your computer. You cancel your data plan on your phone. Get a dumb phone if necessary. Find accountability. Do everything in your power to fight sin while trusting that Jesus Christ has already paid for that sin and will empower you to overcome it. Sadly though, shortly after he began going that direction, he publicly split from his wife due to infidelity. He chose to stay with and marry his mistress. Sad end to a once faithful pastor. And I admit I'd used his books, his commentaries. I have some still in my office even now. But in that instant, his bad fruit was revealed. There was no straight path in his preaching. And ultimately, his doctrine began to reveal itself in his own lifestyle. So we can see bad fruit in both doctrine and lifestyle. But in order to spot the bad fruit, we have to be knowledgeable of what good and true fruit looks like. So that the bad fruit is easy to spot. And so that leads us to our final point this morning. Embrace and emulate good fruit. We need to recognize the bad fruit and avoid it, but then when we find good fruit, we need to embrace it and emulate it. One of the popular examples of this kind of discernment is how federal agents are trained to spot counterfeit bills. You see, when agents are trained to spot counterfeit bills, they're not given a stack or a catalog of all the different kinds of counterfeit bills that the government has encountered over the years to try to learn all of those different ways that money is counterfeited. No, instead, they're given legitimate bills, actual currency, the real deal. And they're told to meticulously study those legitimate bills in order to be able to spot a counterfeit. Because if you know all the features of a real bill, then counterfeits are easy to spot. And so in the same way, if we as believers are to spot counterfeit teachers, false teachers, wolves in sheep's clothing, if we're to avoid falling prey to them, we need to know what the real deal looks like. And for that, we need to be students of the Word. We need to know our Bibles well enough that when we hear something false or when we hear something omitted, warning lights go off in our head. We say, wait a second. That doesn't sound right. You know, Paul commended the Bereans in Acts because he said they would go and study the Scriptures to make sure that what he was saying was true. I would commend you to do the same thing. Listen, go and make sure that what I'm saying, even now, this very morning, that it lines up with what God's Word says. You shouldn't listen to it if it doesn't. We need to know our Bibles well. So that when we hear something false, a warning goes off in our minds. And then when we see good fruit, 
in doctrine and in lifestyle, <coughs> we need to embrace it and incorporate it into our lives. Jesus says a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit. And so when we find a tree bearing good fruit, we need to cultivate that. We need to embrace that. We need to incorporate it into our own lives. The false teachers will lure us off the narrow path and lead us to destruction. But those that demonstrate good fruit can help us as we ourselves are striving to follow the narrow path that leads to life. So how do we know what we're looking for? Well, the Bible tells us. And we don't have to look far. We've already seen in this very sermon in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus has given us the Beatitudes to show us what a truly righteous life looks like. It's someone that mourns over sin. It's someone that's a peacemaker. It's someone that's meek. It's someone who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Be looking for that fruit. Be looking to see if that's evident in a person's life. It's what we ought to be striving to cultivate in our own lives. Later in Galatians chapter 5, Paul tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If someone is filled with the Spirit, then this kind of fruit ought to be evident in their lives. It ought to be springing up from within them so that it can't help but show itself. And so this is what we should be looking for. Following and trying to emulate the people that demonstrate that kind of fruit. Not the flashy TV preacher or the great storyteller. Those folks may be able to draw great crowds by the power of their personality or by the persuasion of their speech. But you are much better off looking for the fruit of a righteous life and right doctrine described by Jesus in the Beatitudes and by Paul in Galatians. Looking to follow a person that is demonstrating that clearly. As faithful shepherds teach the full counsel of God's word. Not shying away from teaching tough doctrines when they arise. As unpopular as that might might be. And as they demonstrate their faithfulness by right living. Then we should embrace that teaching and emulate it. Copy it in our own lives. Paul exhorted the Corinthian believers in 1 Corinthians 11.1, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And that final clause is what's most important. Paul's saying, as I'm following Christ, you follow me and I will help you along this narrow way. This is what it looks like. Now you may be thinking, even now, and, and, and part of this is why I... I I feel uncomfortable preaching sermons like this because you may be thinking, well, Tim, that sounds very self-serving of you, doesn't it? Well, in fact, not at all. This is terrifying for me, if I'm honest with you. Because Jesus gives us this warning and it means that I must be doubly sure that my life is conforming to what His Word says. Knowing that teachers will incur a stricter judgment. In 1 Timothy 4.16, Paul tells Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself, number one, your way of life, yourself, and on the teaching, the doctrine. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. 
This is a verse that will keep pastors up at night. Will cause us to lose sleep. Because that is a heavy burden. It's difficult. It means that I must keep a close watch on myself. It's easy to look at other people and point out all the things that's wrong with them. Right? It's a lot harder to turn that mirror back on your own self. And say, is my life, is my teaching in perfect alignment with God's word? I'll just tell you, I need grace. I need Jesus' help every single day. The same grace that saves me, I need it to sustain me. Because it's difficult to live this way. God gave His church shepherds to lead His sheep on the straight and narrow path. The false prophets want people to follow them. But their path leads to destruction. They are pied pipers of Satan. Leading men and women astray. But the faithful shepherd will lead the sheep as Jesus commands in paths of righteousness. And when that becomes evident that that's where they're going, that they are on the straight and narrow and they're leading people in that direction, then we need to follow. God wants what is best for us. He truly does. But that doesn't come by having our ears tickled, even though that may make us happy in the short term. It comes as He gives us guides to show us in His Word how to experience the abundant life that Christ has come to give us through His atoning death and resurrection. If there is any good fruit at all, it must come from Jesus Christ. It only comes because of His transforming power in the life of a believer. So that Jesus says here, Himself that these people look like shepherds, they act like shepherds, they may talk like shepherds and dress like shepherds, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves because their hearts have not been transformed by the grace of God. The Holy Spirit is not doing its work to produce fruit in their lives, so we need to mark them and avoid them. Our own personal righteousness, the Bible tells us it's just filthy rags, but Jesus has come to give us life and give it more abundantly. Satan is looking to trap and devour as many as he possibly can through deceit and by false prophets. So mark them. Avoid them. Do not fall victim to the wolves. Know your Bible. Heed those that preach it fully and truly. Avoid those that neglect God's word or omit certain distasteful doctrines. Avoid those who show an allergy to holiness in their own personal lives. And as we do so, we will be better guided down the straight and narrow path that leads us to life. If you realize today that you are not on that path, if you realize that that you hate having your sin exposed, that you want those teachers that will only ever try to build you up and tell you good things and tickle your ears because you don't want to look your sin in the eye and deal with it, then I would plead with you, repent and trust Christ. None of us like having our sin exposed. But those of us that have already put their trust in Christ, we know. We know that it's only by acknowledging who we are as sinners and our need for a Savior that we can experience the grace and peace that God has given us in Christ Jesus. 
And so if you realize today that you are not on that straight path that leads to life. You've been trusting in your own righteousness. You've embraced a false teaching that minimizes your sin. That lacks the straight gate and narrow path. That directs people away from Jesus, not toward Him. Today is the day to repent and enter through the narrow gate. To reject the destructive doctrines of wolves. And pursue a life of righteousness. Let's pray. God, we come to you today thankful for your word. Thankful for the warning. Lord, we would never know the danger that lies so close at hand were the warning not included in your word. So I pray that you would help us to take this warning seriously. That you would help us to look around and and evaluate whether or not we are listening to the doctrines of wolves. Lord, give us clear eyes to see bad fruit. But Lord, even more helpfully, give us clear eyes to see good fruit in the lives of faithful men and women. Not just pastors, but our teachers. Those that have gone on the road further ahead than we have, who have demonstrated a lifetime of faithful devotion to you. Help us to see the good fruit in their lives and emulate it. To follow them as they follow Christ. God, this is a a hard word, I confess. And I confess that even from my own perspective, it is difficult to keep a close watch on myself and the teaching. To make sure that I am checking every box along that straight and narrow path. God, I need grace. To do this. And I'm thankful that you promise that grace. And that you provide it. Through Jesus Christ. I pray for anyone else who needs that grace today. If they have not experienced firsthand your redemptive grace in their life. I pray that today for them would be the day of salvation. That you'd bring them from death to life. From despair to hope. That you would redeem. As Jesus has come to do. It's in His precious name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about today's sermon or would like more information about Boone's Creek Baptist Church, you can send us an email at boonscreekchurch at gmail.com or you can give us a call at 859-263-5466. You can also find us online at www.boonscreekchurch.com. Thank you and have a blessed day.